everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Spring has certainly arrived in full in the Northern Hemisphere. Some big flights going down in Europe last week or so. First 300 open distance and a whole bunch of big triangles of snow on the ground. Beautiful, inspiring, and uh, encouraging, hopefully, for the, the season that is headed our way. Hopefully putting COVID in the rearview mirror here. So that's exciting. The music you just heard at the top of the show has been provided by a friend of mine, Thad Spencer, a very good pilot. He's got a music production company and writes all kinds of stuff for tons of different commercial and movies and tons of different things. He's also a musician and he's provided this for us for into the future. So let us know what you think. We're pretty excited about this. It'll make our music aspect of the show much, much easier going forward. Other housekeeping, the book is selling really well, and there's about another week and a half of pre-sales available, which gets you free shipping. And then after that, um, it'll be a little bit more expensive, and or you'll have to get it through your local school, which we encourage. There's 10 or so schools around the world that have a whole bunch shipping out to them now. Everything got delayed with that huge container ship getting stuck in the Suez for over a week. I don't know if ours were on that or if that was just part of the delay, but uh, you might have seen that newsletter come out from Cross Country. That was kind of amusing. So things are a little delayed there, but I've got my copy just arrived yesterday on my desk. And you might have seen a bunch of the folks that are in in the book that provided so much to it. They've also been putting out some really fun posts about it. So came out great. It's a beautiful piece of work that Cross Country put together and tons of good advice. So go to xcmag.com forward slash shop to find it and get your pre-order in now and you'll, you'll get it here very very shortly as soon as that bottleneck in the suez clears my guest today is urs hari swiss legend he's been at this game for over 30 years got into sailplanes when he was really young after uh, watching his father fly rcs and and models and that kind of thing and legend uh, multiple world championship podiums and europeans and world cups and we get into a couple of pretty scary incidences he had including landing in a lake in verbier where he is spends a lot of his time and getting away from the sport for a while coming back to it he is also the head of high adventures he they invented the beamer rescue and Really got to go check out the show notes to this one because he's got a bunch of videos of him testing reserves and cutaway systems and disabling the glider. I learned a ton just from watching these, how reserves work, how they deploy, the speed. He does it all over the ground in a place where there's lots of homes and and power lines and that kind of thing. So um, really valuable there, those, those videos are. So most of the time he's doing his testing, but he gets out for – five, six, seven XC flights a year. And in that time has won, I think five now Swiss challenge cups. So this is the XC challenge cup and that's in the sport class. He now does that on the B cause he just doesn't have the hours to anymore to compete on the, on the high aspect gliders. And so, but that's, that's a, a heck of an achievement uh, with the Swiss. So this guy has been at it and and done really well for an awfully long time. There's lots of stories about Urs racing over here in the early days in the Owens and stuff. And we had a blast with this talk. Lots here. I think you're going to enjoy it. And 
check out the show notes. There's also a lot more there. And if you haven't had a chance yet, go back and listen to the episode with Robbie Whittle. I'm getting a ton of feedback on this one. Very, that was just, that was a precious talk. And uh, we both really enjoyed it. And we've had some fun chats since then, just with all the feedback. So if you missed that one, make sure you check it out. A lot of fun. Today's top of the show tip comes from Kevin Brooker, a sailplane pilot we've had on the show and a regular listener who reached out to Nick and I after the show we recently did together, specifically about one of my responses, which was basically more hours. And he pointed out very accurately that uh, all hours are not the same. And he's been kind of a student of how the brain learns and how we better ourselves, uh, but specifically how the brain is geared towards fear and, uh, and, and stress and being in difficult situations. And so he, he, he reached out to us some, with some really interesting thoughts and Nick sent him a microphone and they sat down for well over an hour to discuss this and many other things, which was fascinating. And so we're going to use just a couple of uh, quick hits from that talk in this top of the show tip here. Uh, the first is on the how we need to approach sledders and how valuable they can really be. And certainly as we get better, we tend to blow the sledder off. And, and Kevin has a pretty good uh, case for why we shouldn't do that and how, how sledders can be incredibly valuable. And the second is wing choice and why a really good pilot on a, on a lower end wing will outclass uh, a pilot on a hotter wing who's not as good. And so this is really valuable information on choosing a wing. Enjoy. We'll start off with this idea that you said that not all days are great flying days. Some days are sledder days and most people miss those. Can you talk a little bit about what someone could do on a sledder day? Yeah. I think sledder days are some, where some of the largest learning opportunities come in because you're flying and everything that that wing does is from your input. And it's a really great time to learn the wing. You can see how your input affects it without having the wind or lift or anything bump it around. So whatever situation you end up in is caused by you. And it's a great time also to learn how to get off the ground, learn how to get on the ground and then play with the wing in the air. See how, you know, applying different control inputs makes the wing react. And you're gathering a ton of information that's going to become valuable later on when things are bouncing around. So as you slow the wing down, how does the handling come? As you get closer and closer to a stall, does it get mushy? Does it do something unexpected? And be, without something like the weather giving you input, you can really start to feel that. So as you're flying in more stout conditions, that same idea is you, the wing might start to feel kind of mushy and you're like, oh, on a dead day, sledder day, this is how it felt as it was approaching a condition which was not favorable. So you can pick up a lot of that information, which again, allows you to use more of the 100% of the performance of that wing. And you're more in touch with feeling how it's going. So you're not worrying about it as much, you know, and again, there'll be different inputs, but when the wing feels mushy and doesn't want to do its thing because you've upset it, it feels mushy. It doesn't matter if you're going really fast or really slow, you'll feel that same, I don't know, it feels unhappy is probably the best way to put it. And 
it's also a great time to start calibrating your glide computer. There's there's no wind, there's no lift to screw it up. So if you're you know getting five to one or six to one in any condition, it's a good time to actually see you know oh I should be able to go from here to here and I should lose 500 feet. Um, did it work out? You know, uh, do I lose more turn? You know, you're always going to be going down. Do I lose more energy circling to the left or to the right? You know, and if you do, why? What do you do that's different? We all probably have a preferred direction to to turn in. And you can start to learn all these things. So that gives you, again, picking up little pieces of performance as you go. And it's a time where you can be more spot on with landings, you know, put the thing right down where you want to put it and, you know, really learn the subtleties of how it feels. I know in the, in the sailplane, you know, there's a, when you would, it would yaw around when you'd get in lift and you'd get in different things and just going really slow, you get to see that. And, you know, how does the control input make it do things? And I learned a lot about how the flight computer works to where I could start to trust it, you know, not quite blindly, but a dead day is a great day to learn about how you interact with the wing because there's nothing there that affects that other than than you. Love it. Love it. Okay. You've talked about this or you mentioned it a couple of times, but I'd like to jump into it further. Is that pilots choose wings in order to protect themselves or to impress others? They want the speed or the safety or whatever they want. Um, you've said you've mentioned this idea of kind of the being able to use some percentage of the wing. Can you go through how you think about using the percentage of the wing in your skill versus the, the wings ability? Yeah. So there's in the, in the general bell curve of the flight envelope, right? There's a certain area where it's pretty easy to fly, you know, and in a good day, it, it does what it's going to do. And this can be a little bit rambly. So just, so if you put two different pilots on the same, in the same aircraft on the same wing, you're going to have two different results and, you know, becoming comfortable with what the glider does is really important because if, when you get into a realm that you don't understand the input, the glider is giving you or something feels different. We get nervous and we get scared and fear is there. It's always going to be there. And we will resort back to revert back to an area of comfort. And a lot of times is understanding what that wing is doing, lets you stay in that slightly discomfort zone a, a little bit more. I'm not saying a risky zone or anything like that, but something where the glider is doing something you're not used to might be you know, f flying slower or some input it's getting and you need to squeeze that, that little bit of input, you're squeezing a little bit of extra performance out of that wing, you know, how it goes faster when you're in a still day, you know, how does putting the speed bar on affect things? How does it affect the way it feels? How does it affect the way it turns? How does it affect a, a lot of things? And you know, the, the time when you have to go fast, if you're just not used to doing that, just in general, when it's flat, on a, on a stronger day when you may want to move fast between in the sink, right? You want to get between the lift from one lift source to the next as quickly as possible. Even though the sink rate is higher, you still have to get used to understanding that you're going to get there. And if you get nervous, we tend to slow down. So we stay in the sink longer and we sink out faster. And it's really understanding how that aircraft flies so that you can maximize 
every piece of it and get everything out of it. That's within your comfort zone. And some people are willing to push closer and closer and closer to the edge um, where it doesn't want to fly well, you know, and it's discovering that where's that place for you so you can get the most out of it. And even a lesser aircraft will be flown better by somebody who's super comfortable with it than somebody who's not as competent on a higher performance rig. And for now, enjoy this great talk with Ursari. Urs, what a pleasure. I was uh, really excited. To, I got the press release from Till about yet another Swiss Cup victory for yourself. And and about the same time, my buddy and ski buddy and flying partner, and I know someone you know well, back from the, your world's days and all that, Nate Scales, he's my neighbor. And he, he reached out at the same time. He said, you got to talk to Urs. He's been at this forever. You got to talk to Urs. Did you see he won the Swiss Cup yet again? And he hardly ever gets a chance to fly. And so uh, I'm, I'm humbled and excited to talk to you. And I thought a really fun place to start in your email kind of introduction that kind of lays out your 30 years of flight. You, you talk about your work with High Adventure. This is your company. You invented the Beamer, which I didn't know. And you sent me a bunch of links to your video work, which is phenomenal. I don't know how you do that camera work when you're <laughs> throwing reserves and all this stuff. It's really well done. So we'll have all those links in the show notes. But I wanted to start with your reserve work. I realize we're start, starting at the opposite end. That's very much current, what we're doing now. And then we'll dive back into the history of it. But Tell me about high adventure and throwing your reserve. I want to talk, just get people more excited about throwing their reserves because you obviously do it all the time. Yeah. Hi, Gavin. Uh, it's an honor to me talking to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, well, we found high adventure in the 90, early 1994, and um, we were, or we still, uh, distribute Nova paragliders and some other brands. But at that time, we also worked uh, already on the first Rogallo reserve parachutes. We received one from uh, our manufacturer in Korea. And those were some uh, shoots. They were jumping off the airplanes at that time to 1917 and uh, uh, 1980. They had a sh short period where they used uh, Rugala shoots between the round ones and uh, the square canopies now. And that's how everything began. Mm. And you're, you're and, and again, I want to really encourage people to see these videos, but you're doing all your testing over the ground and you've got amazing systems, you know, these cutaway systems and, I wanted to just talk about how you've you've developed your process for testing and what should the listeners know about throwing their reserve? Because you're obviously about as comfortable with doing it as a, a very, very seasoned acro pilot. <laughs> I, I loved watching them. They're they're just they're they're very educational. Yeah. Well, you know, at the beginning we started to uh test everything. Um, above water for sure because we were not experienced at all and then when the, the Rugala shoots came when we started to test them it was so much 
um, easier. The sync rate was much better, much lower. And um, so we started to do the tests above ground. Also, you know, uh, preventing the fabric and the lines uh, from shrinking. And uh, mm. we, we um, didn't lose that much time in between uh, the different tests. Uh, we didn't have to wait until the canopy dried out again and uh, for, for repacking and all these things. So we were um, pretty fast doing the tests with this first Rugala shoot because we we just uh, you know we, we went up and down. We did um, um, even a few tests per day, and we were really very um, fast with this. And then later on, when we started to test uh, regular reserve parachutes, like hemispherical ones, round ones, and even now in the last few years, the square shoots, we we started to test them also, you know, in the wintertime, uh, we landed on the ground, but I'm getting older, man, and, you know, it hurts. 5.5 <laughs> meters per second, if you hit yeah. the deck, that... Uh, it's not it's not so nice especially if you do it uh, once or twice a day so um i started you know thinking about a system where we can use the advantage of the steerable uh, rugal reserve parachutes which are which have bigger surfaces lower sink rates and you can you you can uh, avoid uh, flying into an obstacle i just started to combine the experience I've made during uh, skydiving. I was a skydiver for a short time and I knew this um, three ring systems and, uh, you know, the cutaway system uh, of, of your main shoot if you had a problem when you had to pull the reserve. And that's how we finally ended up with this design and uh, it works really well. Can you tell me, let's clarify, are, are there misconceptions about the Regalo? For, for example, uh, I, was, I have always been told that you know if you're flying in a comp and you've got two reserves, maybe have your Regalo as your primary and a square or a round as your, as your secondary. And then let's, let's talk about the difference between square and round and your, you know, your preferred reserve. But I have been told that if you're if you're quite low to not go with the regalo, go with one of the others because you're not going to be able to get it into steering mode fast enough. Is that is that a misconception? Yes, for sure. Because um, the way we designed our regalo reserve parachutes is that um, you don't have to steer them, so um, they come in a pre-break pre-braked um, brake setting. So steering is just, is just uh, you know, that's, it's more like the freestyle program. That's how I call it in my, in my safety clinics when I teach really beginners for the first time when they throw a reserve. When they, when they show up with a Rugal reserve and uh, they also use um, um, cutaway systems or like uh, quick out carabiners and all this kind of stuff. And I never let them do uh, to cut away their lighter before they are not uh, in the situation to, to fly 
uh, combined or uh, connected to their main paraglider because what this is a misunderstanding because uh, most of people think I have a steerable reserve now and if something happened um, they 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 throw their reserve and the first thing is they focus completely on their cutaway system they don't look at their paraglider um, they don't take care about their paraglider because sometimes it's really important that you um, that you prevent it from still from flying or from disturbing so the procedure is always the same i tell them that um, they have to prevent their paraglider from flying before they do everything uh, something else if they have their paraglider under control um, then they can try to steer they don't have to cut away this is also something uh, people uh, didn't understand at all the ones who, who never tried this before uh, the the focus always has to be on the paraglider first if you're under a regular parachute reserve shoot uh, a square one or a round one it doesn't matter all you want to do is uh, bring the system uh, to under control right yeah, so, and you're, so, so, you're, you're doing that in your videos. In, it looks like just incredibly easy. I mean, you just, you reach up and you grab, you know, your B's or your C's, whatever's the, the, the last cascade and the wing you're flying and just pull it down. And it's often just a, you, and then you just hold them with one hand. I've noticed it's, it looks very easy to just kill the glider. Yeah. You know, that's, um, if you do it, you are prepared and you know exactly what, what, uh, what will come, or, or you, you think uh, that this could, this could uh, come next. Uh, so you are prepared. I mean, if you, if, if it's in a real situation, if you're under stress, uh, if there is a lot of valley wind or, or uh, strong thermals, whatever, um, a lot of adrenaline. Uh, sometimes it's it's difficult, you know. And and uh, to be honest, if you have a, um, a huge twist in your system, if you mm. if your risers are twisted up uh, four or five times, or the lines are twisted up four or five times, then it's not that easy anymore. You know, um, I have videos um, uh, where where one can see that I couldn't uh, release the glider. I was testing a, a prototype, so I had to release my glider because it was overground, plenty of um, obstacles around, power lines, and all these things. So, you know, that's when when you need a cut cutaway knife. I just I just cut off everything. But normally, this is to come back to the to your uh, first question is. Um, the, the procedure is the same for everybody. You have to throw the reserve and then you, you have to check uh, that it, it's open. That's the next uh, checkpoint. When it's open, you take care about your, your uh, paraglider. So it doesn't matter if you have a steerable or a non-steerable reserve. The good thing about uh, our Rogala shoots is that uh, they open very fast because the packing is completely different, their form is different, so they inflate much faster and they have a much bigger 
surface area. So if they they are thirty percent bigger than the modern uh, reserve parachutes. So that's for me personally the two strongest arguments for that kind of design. And uh, that's a that's a very important argument if you are close to the ground, fast opening, and the larger surface makes the descent rate. Uh, decreasing smaller and then if you have time if 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 you are trained i mean you gotta have to to try this uh at least once so you will you will see how it works you just grab you just grab with one hand one brake handle and you you pull it and since it's pre-braked um the opposite side is still under under brakes, so you can you can steer with one hand right or left by uh, going off the brake. Then it pulls to the other side by pulling down the brake. It pulls to to the opposite side. The cutaway system takes uh, an, an, another action, uh, one more action, and and you have to be really trained in this uh, to to uh, then after you you prevent your glider from flying you have got everything under control uh to to release the main glider um with a quick out carabiners or something it's a good option if you are high or i would say even in a competition i would not fly in a competition uh, with 30 other uh, 30 other pilots in a in the same thermal uh the risk of a tangle is is pretty high, so there I would definitely recommend to fly with with a cutaway system. So if you get tangled uh, to another paraglider pilot, you just you know cut off goodbye, and you you just uh, use the full potential of a steerable reserve. But everything before is not focused on the cutaway system. That's my that's my um, um, tip, you know, to everybody. Mm. Yeah. Th- so there, there's two things here with the regalo because I in one of your videos you showed that you wrapped up you you pulled out the regalo and you just had it in your hand and you twisted it a bunch of times and then you threw it and then you just steered it with one and that's not something I ever knew about. So that's I want to make sure everybody understands that that you can just steer it with one um, and one toggle and then the other is. What about it? Sounds like if so, if it's in the braked position, it will it not turn down because I've heard you know, okay, the problem with regalos if there's a lot of wind is they can turn down wind and you can start accelerating beyond what you, you know, if, if you don't have it in steering mode, it can go down wind and, and, and go too fast. So that sounds like another misconception. If it's in the braked, if it's packed correctly and it's braked, it's just basically coming down like a square, correct? Uh, what okay, what happens, um. Quite often, you know, when I do my tests, uh, just um, next to the company, it's in a in a in a small valley. From uh, from uh, from noon, we have a pretty strong valley wind when we do tests, and when I uh, fl- test Rogala shoots, uh, when you have your main paraglider under control, you know, um, you just um, you just drag it behind you because you have the forward speed is so little you know when we we found out during the last few years 
that the difference in forward speed of a square or a square round canopy compared to a, to our big Rogala shoots is like uh, three to four kilometers an hour. It's really hmm. uh, just a little, a bit higher. But when you track your paraglider behind you, this um, is like... Um, a spin actor. Does that sounds familiar to you? Yeah, sure. I'm a sailor. Yeah, of course. So it's like a spin actor, you know, it turns you around. So uh, all those stories that you, 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 it turns you automatically uh, with the wind. It's just not true. We just make a completely uh, different uh, experience with that. If if your glider is connected to you, it's uh, uh, it's a big, it's a big resistance like a like a spinnaker and mm-hmm. it it pulls you around it pulls you actually into the wind if you mm. if you disconnect your main glider i mean then you have uh, two brake lines uh, if you steer you decide where you're going to land if you if you don't do anything you might end up flying with the wind for sure that 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 can happen but uh, you still have more options compared to a regular reserve. What do you personally fly with when you're, you know, when you're going XC? What's what's your kit? What's your harness and what are your reserves? I'm flying um, pod harness from from Woody Valley and Nix, uh, Nix R7, and my primary reserve is um, uh, Beamer Three Light, the big one. We're flying in the Alps, so uh, um, the chances that you might have a problem uh, in high altitude is is um, is bigger. So, so I recommend um, to all those pilots flying in in high altitude to really go for a large surface um, reserve parachute because sink rate uh, will will increase with altitude and. The backup reserve is um, is a Pentagon, um, a smaller one because of of, of uh, weight and the volume. It's a Pentagon uh, for a hundred kilos. Okay, tell me about sink rate. That's an important one. I, I think with the with hike and fly becoming such the rage and really really light gear, I, I think many people. Uh, maybe are compromising quite a bit on safety. I mean, I know all of my buddies in the X-Alps, we all do this, uh, but consciously, you know, we've all got the lightest round you can possibly get. And, and, you know, but the sink rate is, is pretty high. And, and when you get up, what, what is the number, the magic number where you can really start getting hurt? I've always been told it's six. Um, well, that's that's a, a difficult question because I've, it it depends a lot of the terrain where you mm. you you uh, you um, hit the deck. You know, if it's yeah. if it's if it's a, a steep grass uh, alpine meadow, um, you you just walk away with with six meters per second. But if you if you hit um, a rocky face, you know, or, or a cliff or something. Um, no, no good news. So, yeah. um, you know, the thing is, um, the thing is, 
the shoots, the reserve parachutes, when they are tested, the, those 5.5 meters per second, that's always calculated on sea level. Right. So if you have a, if you have a, a, a canopy tested uh, for like, let's say 5.5 meters per second, and um, it allows you to carry, um, it's, it's been certified with 120 kilos. Um, it's an easy, easy calculation to find out um, hooking weight like on 3,000 or 2,000 meters. The, with the same sink rate, you can hook in around 90 kilos. So you are already 30 kilos under the limit. And you still sink with 5.5 meters per second. If there is no wind, if there are no thermals, that's uh, important <laughs> information. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and um, so th that's the point, you know, if you guys on during the X Alps, if, if you're really going to the limit, um, uh, you, and if you have, um, a sketch on, 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 a, in an altitude of two or 3000 meters, um, you, you, you gotta have a chance to, to land on a really steep meadow. Otherwise you are probably out of business for that race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, some, something's going to snap or break or, or certainly get awful sore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, 5.5 5 meters per second. Um, I, I did it quite often when I, when I tested um, those kind of, of reserves. Uh, you know, I saw on the Wario, um, ah, it's 5.3, 5.4. It's no problem. Uh, at the, the drift is okay. There is hardly no wind. Um, the, the, I, I will land on a flat area and a clean area. There are no obstacles around. So I just save uh, me uh, the packing from the Rogal system. So I'll just land on the prototype. And, you know, when I was younger, it was no problem. I just, you know, it hurt a little bit. The muscles were a little bit uh, tight the next day. But now um, I did it two or three years ago. And um, I, I had to visit the um, um, uh, chiropractor the next day. <laughs> it really hurt. You know, I really hurt myself. Nothing was broken, but I had problems with my back, with my neck. And uh, I think um, that's, that's um, you know, just to give you an idea about 5.5 uh, or if, if I land on the Rogal, it's 3.5, 3.7, and it's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. I, I can say that from my own experience, and you have much, much more, but it, it is really a huge difference. And it's, you know, I think the PLF and all these kind of things are really important, but you're often in these weird situations where – you know, doing a proper PLF is kind of tricky, you know, stuff's batting around and there's, you know, you're, you're, you're either oscillating or, you know, something is going on, but I, I do really appreciate the, the cutaway remark because it seems like, and you've got more experience certainly than I do, but it seems like the, the accidents 
these days it, it, in comps are are coming more and more from midairs than they are from you know back in the day it was it was gliders blowing up and they don't really blow up anymore uh, certainly they get in trouble as always but but it seems like a, a lot of the, a lot of the real tragic accidents are happening from midairs and if if the, you know I with cutaways I've only ever used them with with acro and I, I, I've known I've needed to make that switch, but I'm glad you said that because you, your videos make it real clear that that's an awful nice way to go. You just, bump, it's gone, and here you go. You're under your nice regalo, and you can steer it in. Yeah, and even that, even I think you know all those guys um, uh, trying to set uh, new world records, or even f for us when we land in. Um, in a steep valley and there is still, you know, if you land too early and there's still a uh, strong valley wind, or as I said, mm. the guys in Brazil, when, when they fly with 60, 70 or 80 kilometers an hour of wind, uh, if, if you bomb out right after takeoff, it's, um, um, it's not, not always, um, so easy to, to, um, to get stopped afterwards. Yeah, I uh, I spent a few weeks in Texas this summer trying to break the world record with Donizete and Cody and a few other really good pilots, and we had some real interesting landings. You know, it's all cactus and mesquite yeah. and stuff you don't want to get stabbed into. Exactly. And, you know, of course, all the roads are perpendicular to the wind. I'm sorry, yeah, perpendicular to the wind. They're not parallel with the wind, so you, you really had to stab it in and, and be good at getting that thing down quick or you were – you were flying yeehaw through the through the mesquite. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, Gavin, just to to, to come back uh, just quickly on on this reserve um, discussion. I think you know all kind of different systems. Uh, we have all the modern reserves; they are working very well. You know, the, the systems out there they are good. What I I quite often see. In my clinics, or or when we talk to people um, having a crash or a serious accident, what I always um, learn is that, or recommend, uh, it's rather a recommendation after all these experiences, that people just don't take enough care of 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 that complete of their complete system. And I really, I highly recommend to everybody to to do at least once an opening to see and to feel how it is under reserve because if if you if you have a, a, a serious problem up there and and um, the time is running you know if you're close to the ground there is no room for taking decisions for too long time you know you mm. It, it, it's a procedure which should come uh, um, from you deep inside. It should be in in your awareness and or your in, in your subconscious, and every single move should be in there, programmed in your muscles, in your subconscious. Like you know, the the skydivers they practice this. I miss this on on the in our scene. Uh, people, quite a lot of people, they don't know how they should really do the whole procedure and if they're under stress they won't know how to 
Yeah, I don't know if you've been following Matt Wilkes. Is, he's a, has a group where they've been doing a lot of simulations and studies the last couple of years with with reserves, and not so much, you know, this reserve over that reserve, but just uh, put pe- put pilots in stress uh, in the simulator and see what happens. And you know, there's a pretty high number of people that never get to it. Yes, uh, yeah. you know, and it's 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 real fascinating this freeze or, or flight syndrome and and how people react under stress and when, when fear is involved and, and just not being able to get to the handle, you know, the, the, the brain and the hand don't link up. And, and, uh, you know, if you don't have it as an automatic, I mean, I think this is one of the things that the acro pilots just really have down because they throw it so much and like watching your videos, to me, it's just an encouragement to do it because it's, it clearly it works and it's not that stressful. And if you have that kind of muscle memory, I've been encouraging people on the, on the show. We've been talking about this quite a bit. It's just every time you go fly, make a habit of that, do it with your right hand, do it with your left hand, come up with a system. So when you're suddenly in some kind of weird, uh, you know, SIV situation or cascade, it's not something you have to really think through. It's just an automatic. You just go, go do it. Exactly. And Matt did really brilliant job with his work. That's, that was a, an, That's a, a, a hopefully an eye opener for, for a lot of, of pilots out there. Yeah, no, it's terrific. Well, don't let me abandon this subject if you have more to say, but I would love to dive into your history. And I thought, you know, you've done this terrific job of your email was, was great. I've read it several times now. Uh, fascinating history. And I thought I'd just let you let you tell it as you as you like. But uh, if there's more to say on the on the reserves, let's not leave that subject. But if, if we've said enough, then let's move on. Yeah, let's let's uh, move on to the other stuff. Okay. <laughs> your dad was a, your dad was sounding like he was pretty critical in you learning how to do this. I, I'm when you say he was a he was he worked at the local gliding group. Was he an RC pilot as well, or were we talking sail sailplanes? Uh, he he uh, was an RC pilot before. That's uh, how uh, everything began. Yes. There's a me. I, I so many of the kind of real legend pilots we've had on the show came from RCs. It, what what is it about? It seems like they just have a, you know, you, you're definitely learning something even from just watching RC planes that that becomes part of your skill repertoire. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, flying is a fascination, and if if you get into contact with it so early when when you're even when you're a kid when you're very young you're out there you know you're in the nature and um you know at that time when 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 we were there on the on the slopes there were no handies nothing no no mobile phones so we were we were not looking into a screen at the screen yeah. we were <laughs> we were observing the gliders you know we were helping them how to launch or uh, or we brought them back when they landed somewhere else, and and you know you you look at the birds, you look at how they how they fly around, you you um, you uh, you know you you uh, make your own um, paper paper uh, airplanes, and you know I think that that um, altogether uh, leaves leaves um 
traces for sure. Mm-hmm. And so was your, was your father quite instrumental? Was he, was he encouraging of, of flight? Encouraging towards me or? Yeah. Yeah. Did he, did he, you know, encourage you to get into hang gliding, paragliding, sailplanes? No, 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 not, not at all. No, no. We always had to, to, uh, really to ask him, he, that, that we also could fly his RC planes, you know, <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was, Come not, on, Dad. he was not always happy. And, uh, you know, at that time they really, they designed their all their own, uh, RC planes and all things. So there was a lot of work in there, and uh, so that was sometimes pretty hard um, fights uh, with between him and 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 um, us. You know, I have two two uh, other brothers, and even uh, when I was uh, when I became sixteen, you know, that was the time where we could. Um, um, where it was possible to make the license, the sailplane license. He never forced, you know, but we were so often, we spent so much time on the, on the, uh, airfield. And I was just, I was interested. My two older brothers, they were not, uh, at all in, in this, but they started, um, uh, paragliding earlier than I did later on, but they were not interested in uh, flying sailplanes. But for me, it was, you know, it was really cool, and then um, uh, I started, I started to um, to learn it. And yeah, it sounds like your your first wing was your your older brother's uh, nine cell paraglider in, in eighty eight. That's I've seen a few of those. <laughs> like you uh, yeah. said, it's it's basically proximity flying in slow motion. <laughs> that, that's how, exactly how it felt like. Yeah, I was always. I was, you know, I was always laughing at them because they started, I think they started something like 86 or something where the yeah, first yeah. Lucky Strike Open uh, comes in Verbier. They, they they flew there and they flew every single weekend. And when I saw them, I was just, uh, for me, it was a joke. It was just... Yeah, I mean, it, I mean it, this is kind of a funny thing, but doesn't the Rogallo now, doesn't one of your reserves have a better glide? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something, That's something hysterical. like that. Yes, yeah. And so you got into you, uh, you, but you got into it then. It sounds like it really grabbed hold because you were you were competing in worlds and the World Cup in San Andre just two years later. Yeah, I was I was uh, really in afterwards. You know, when I when I found out that one could um, fly in thermals with with those gliders at that time i mean i modified mine you know and i made it slower i trimmed it and i put uh, some some handles on the on the b riser to slow it down in the in the thermal even like uh and there was just a and b's at that time like the two liners today and i was just psyched when you know when i saw people going up on on those pieces of fabric and the simplicity and and uh, um yeah you could just go all over and that's when i got into it really uh really deep 
Yeah, that was yeah, – this is going to sound quite ridiculous, but you know, in the States here, we don't have nearly the numbers. You, know, you don't see paragliders at the top of every mountain like you do in Europe. And a buddy of mine had gotten into the flying in kind of the mid-90s, Tiger Mountain near Seattle, a very famous site here in the States. And he used to beg me to get into it, and I would go out to the LZ and, and watch, and I, I just saw all these people floating around on these colorful wings, and I thought, oh, that's kind of neat, but – I had no idea that you could go anywhere. I just yeah. thought they can't, went off the mountain, and most of them did. They just went off and they flew around, and then they landed at the LZ. I just thought it looked really boring, and it wasn't really until I saw my first X Alps that I thought, "Wait, what? What? What are these people doing? <laughs> they're yeah, they're yeah. traveling by air? Yeah, I just I I didn't realize it for a decade. I didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, at that time when you know eighty eight, eighty nine. Uh, it really, it really went fast afterwards. You know, um, every new glider, uh, it was just plus one one glide ratio. You know, so they were really dangerous. But but uh, <laughs> but um, the um, the plus in 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 um, in in um, glide ratio was was amazing. Each each new glider flew so much better that uh, it went so much so fast. You know, like two years or three years later, we were flying 150 kilometers with them. Yeah, and you you broke a, an early record. I don't have that up in front of me, but in the in the press release, uh, I mean, in the early 90s, didn't you break a record that was 200 and something k? And it was just, I mean, I. I wasn't flying back then, but that must have been just an absurd number back at the time. Yeah, that was at uh, the time that I think the previous world record was uh, 147, something like that, uh, um, done by Xavier Remo. Mm. We, we used to compete uh, together. It's a French, uh, very well-known French pilot. And, and I have to say that uh, just a few weeks before I did my world record, uh, the, that Andrew Smith, you, you probably the name sounds sure. familiar to you. Yeah, it's a really uh, old legend, unfortunately. He already uh, left us. He did uh, the first flight over 200 kilometers uh, just a few weeks before, I think he was also two twenty, or even uh, or even more. But um, unfortunately, uh, he did not document it. And at that time, you know, you had to. Mm. Well, I think it's pretty much still the same today. But you have to take pictures and uh, before takeoff, you need a barograph and all these things. It was a lot more difficult or more complicated than it is today. But um, yeah, that was, I was really, I was, I was, uh, the rock star at that time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was going to, uh, you're, you're, I mean, I, I see this, this rock star that, you know, in that era, um, I mean, I, I recently talked to Robbie Whittle and that, that show will be out here pretty soon. And just the parties, uh, just sounded like a very different, you know, you go to a, you go to a world cup these days, they're pretty serious. Oh. Gosh, I, you know, I tell you, you won't believe it, Kevin. But I mean, in in, in during the Worlds in in San Andre, uh, ninety one, I think we were we were twice 
we came back at four o'clock in the morning from Vigna. We had such a good time there. And um, uh, a year later on, during the European Championship in Slovenia, I, I, I made it one day directly from the nightclub to the <laughs> to the breakfast, and then right into the into the uh, uh, microbus to drive up to take off. It was crazy. Really so that when you when you write that these are the flashy full body preservatives, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you know, just you know, Richard Gallon, um, um, all these all these guys, Andy Hediger, Robbie Whittle, yeah. all, all these people. Uh, you know, that was really wasn't it was serious, but it wasn't. Uh, as profit, uh, no, it was far away uh, compared to the professionality from today. Today, that's uh, that's uh, not wouldn't be a good idea anymore. Yeah, and I mean, you had you had a lot of success in the next few years. There was uh, the Europeans and World Cups, and that must have been an exciting time. Everybody's flying prototypes, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that was that time. <laughs> it's scary to think of going straight from the bar to the hill and on those gliders. They're a little different. Well, maybe it made <laughs> yeah, it maybe made you're it, more it relaxed. It, it made it easier sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more relaxed. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> um, then, then, it, then it gets a little darker after that. It had some downsides. You're tell me about. You had a couple of really close calls. Yeah. I had I had one uh, just before the Worlds in Verbier, but that was um, that was uh, during the, the the real good times, you know. But I had a, um, a near death experience just I think two months before the Worlds in Verbier. I uh, visited the, the flight school just next next around the corner, and I flew over the lake and did some maneuvers with my. With my glider, I, f I flew two months later on during the Worlds. And just, you know, nothing serious, just a few collapses. And uh, I just I just got this cravat, small little cravat. And that was a, at that time, you know, it was kind of new. We we knew it 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 can happen, but we, we didn't knew exactly what to do <laughs> afterwards. Mm. And, um, you know, I spiraled down with like, uh, three and a half, four meters per second it was really nothing serious, but I could not hold it to fly straight back to the, to the LZ. And, you know, um, when I checked the sink rate, I thought, ah, I'm not going to throw the reserve because I, I'm going to, I'm going to land it to the water. So it's, it's going to be, I can stall it just before and land pretty, pretty safe. but. What I completely um, uh, uh, didn't have on my radar is that um, uh, when I was in, in the water, you know, I started to swim and I thought, well, my friends are around. You know, there was the, the instructor with his, with his uh, uh, beginners. He, uh, he was on the hill and there were other pilots around, but nobody saw me. So I was there in the air, maybe a hundred meters away from from the um, shore, and after seven or ten minutes, I found myself like in in um, in a forest jacket, you know, 
I was just, I couldn't move my legs anymore, my feet, everything. I was just like tangled and in the water, like, um, like, um, I don't know, like a sausage there. I could not do anything anymore. And I was really, it was an experience. I gave up. I went, uh, I went under the water and there was this fisherman sitting on his, on his, um, on his balcony, uh, having lunch. And he saw me and he came and, um, and pulled me off the water. So that was, that was one. But at that time, it's, uh, I could, uh, easily put this away. Don't know how, but you know, you, you mean mentally put it away. It didn't mentally you? put it away. Yeah. I was like, I couldn't, I didn't sleep that well the, the next few, few nights, but, um, when I went to Verbier, I was ready again, no fear, you know. And um, did but, you have any kind of um, Erst when 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 you gave up and kind of went under the water? Was there any kind of uh, that I had a I had a somewhat similar incident uh, kayaking down in 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 Mexico a whole bunch of years ago where. You know, it was beyond the panic stage. I'd, I'd been underwater so long, and I'd swallowed so much water that it was, it was like, okay, well, that that's it. You know, I'm 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 dead. And it was incredibly calm for a little while. Yeah. Just, just, but then there was this voice in the back of my head that, well, wait a minute, you're, you got to do something. And can you talk about more about? Was there any kind of, uh, okay, well, that's it. I, I I guess that's it for me. Yeah. The thing is, the thing was, um, you know, I was really, at the beginning, I was very relaxed because I thought I can swim. I'm not far away from the shore. So let's, let's swim uh, to the shore. And then when I, uh, you know, every, every minute started to get worse, you know, and when I realized that, um, that uh, no, no one will come and help me, then I started to panic. I started to panic so much. You know, I started to shout, to cry, to, to whistle. And uh, until I got completely powerless. Mm. And then the same happened to me, like you just described it, you know, I mean, I was fighting uh, until I couldn't, I, I had no power anymore. Then, um, th there was this relaxing feeling coming back, you know, I was just like, it's, it's, uh, you know, I really felt no fear anymore. Uh, I was completely distressed. And, and I saw this light too. I heard music. And I, I remember I had the, the, the thoughts that this is it. It's, 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 it's over. I really finished at that time, at that moment with my, with my uh, life. Wow. Yeah. So keep going. You said it. You said that it. It didn't really. But then he saved yeah, you, and it, it didn't really change. It did. Did it change your approach? Yeah. Then you know. Then at the worlds, um, I was in the leading gaggle on the first day when we flew back to Verbier, um, and I had um, in the last uh, big thermal just like maybe eight kilometers away from, from the Alzi up there in Verbier. I had in, in the lee side uh, collapse again with the same glider. Um, same, 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 like two months before, a little 
little cravat uh, on on the outer wingtip. It went into a deep spiral, and I knew um, I have to I have to throw my reserve now, you know. And I threw it, and when it was open, two seconds later, I hit the wall. I, I landed in the steep, rocky wall on a, on a, a grassy grassy ledge and i was i was um, not hurt at all i was very lucky you know and then even that was not such a big problem for me i flew the next day again and i i catched from i think i was at, at the first day i was um over over uh, the position 105 or 7 and uh, the second last day i was back under the the first 10 i messed up the last the last task then but um i just went all or nothing but um really uh, what you um just said before in um during the millennium change at the beginning uh, mm. i split with my with my wife uh we were together for seven years we had a two and a half year old daughter and that was just it was so tough for me that uh, that time, you know, and the years that uh, followed later on, because we we were in a difficult situation. We were, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, fighting to see the kid, and uh, mm. um, you know, um, that pulled me really down, and that brought me completely to another lifestyle. Uh, you know, I was. I was on the search for for answers for this because before, as I said, rock stars, you know, and uh, we went from event to event. We were, uh, I was successful. I was successful in business. At the same time, also, um, um, my business did not run well. Everything came together, you know, so um, new situation. And I then found out that um, best for me was uh, when I went out into nature. I was, I was, um, whenever it was possible, I went out, I, I went for hikes, I went into the, into the mountains here around the place where I live. I was spending hours in, in, in the forest around. I went on, on tours, uh, hiking, climbing mountains, and I got this this experience with nature, uh, which gave me a lot. Um, I could fill up my batteries. I could find uh, answers on my questions. You know, I did. I did even uh, hawk trees and stuff. You know, I went into that direction, and yeah. and it was really the only thing which um, brought me back on track after after. Um, three, four years, you know, until, until it gets really to normal life again, if, if, if I can say it like that. Was this, was this period, um, marked by any kind of clinical depression? Was it, was it, uh, you know, was it the kind of thing it's just hard to get out of bed is, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of pilots that seem to suffer and maybe this is just society at large, but it seems that, that this is really an ill with our 
family with our community and i think it's you know the 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 adrenaline, the risk, the, you know, the, the flying takes people that are, that can be kind of manic out of that. But when you're not here, you suffer. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, in, you know, looking back to that time, I think there was, um, there was this break and, and, um, the lack of of seeing seeing our kid and you know the fights uh, mm-hmm. uh, which which happens during the, those kind of of things um, is is one thing and I think on the other on the other side it was also it was kind of um, of um, oh, I think it's it was I was close or I was in a burnout it was close or I was in a burnout and my luck was really that. Um, that um, I had the chance to to go out to to you know to go into nature and calm down and uh, I was not in a therapy or something like that but I had good friends you know uh, mm. good good friends around flying friends where you know like uh, I could talk and that was really important for me. What was the reason during this period that you didn't fly? Did you just not feel like you had the right headspace for it or was it just the burnout you just didn't want to you know after these accidents and you mentioned in your in your write-up you know obviously there was there was other accidents too you lost good friends um Uh, yeah was it just there was just no no um desire anymore you know Mm. i had there was actually nothing i was really uh I, i could get hooked into it Again, it was just, I was just in the, I think I was in the survival mode. Sure. And that took enough energy. So no energy for something, something else. Mm. And so this, this period was, was how long? What, what? what? Yeah, it took me, it took me two years, at least two, three years, um, you know, and then, then I started, I, I really made some good experiences with, um, you know, meditation, uh, shamanism, all this kind of, uh, I practiced all these things a little bit at that time. And um, I also went on a trip. My uh, At that time, I, I really had a strong feeling for, you know, being along for a longer period, um, hiking, through um, a country where I don't speak uh, uh, the the local language, where I don't know everybody, and uh, that was a real, real good uh, adventure for me. Really, that was one of my best experiences I've ever did. When yeah, I went to Mongolia, in Mongolia, yeah, and at a time, it, you know, that was kind of before the big mining boom, uh, uh, as I understand it. And must I mean, I think it's still a very special place, but uh, that that would be a good place to heal. It seems like it's just there's nothing but nature. Yeah, exactly. The, was the 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 work you did with with the shamans and uh, that community was that? And were you were you um, experimenting at all with psychedelics? Um, no, not at the beginning. I did that okay. later <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was stable again. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I did some, I did some, um, 
later on, even the last few years. I, I did it twice, the uh, ayahuasca, ayahuasca mm. rituals. That, that was really also a good experience. But now that was everything uh, natural, natural experiences. It was really um, um, without all this kind of stuff. Yeah, singing, singing, dancing, uh, meditation. Um, it works too. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. is, medit- is meditation now really a part of your kind of daily life? Uh, no. Okay. Or at least at least not uh, uh, when I'm aware or, or consciously, you know. I'm, mm. I'm the kind of guy I don't like too much noise around me. Mm. I prefer the silence. Uh, even even when I was a kid, when I was 13, 14 years old, quite often I did uh, ski tours, you know, uh, hiking up with skis, mm-hmm. uh, skins underneath two mountains. And I felt most comfortable when I did this by my own. Yeah. I need, I need my, my um, islands of silence. So from time to time. Mm. So I think that's where I, where I can, um, um, you know, refill my, my tank. So tell me about kind of coming back to flight. It sounds like in 2008, you, you, you came back to it. What was that? What was the impetus there? Was it just the curiosity came back? The desire came back? Yeah. The, I, I really felt felt good, and I had some some friends flying uh, um, in XC still. You know, it was a was I, di- I didn't flew that much XC when when I was uh, active uh, active pilot. I, I was more uh, involved into competitions. The world record was just uh, uh, I, I gave it a try, but um, you know. Uh, the, at that time, I didn't. I can't remember when the um, the GPS instruments uh, came into into the game. You know, the documentation of uh, cross country flying, loading up your track uh, um, um, the same day or the next day, having uh, a result right away on the internet. Um, that's that brought me back. Um, in two at uh, two thousand and eight or something, and it was so fascinating for me because before you know the the last XC flights we did for the for the Swiss Cross Country Cup, you had to uh, declare the flight before takeoff. You had to take a picture of yourself with the flight declaration. You had to to take pictures of the turn points of the landing place. You had to have a guy signing you that you have landed there. It was so complicated. And then all of a sudden, this freedom. And I was in this, I was in this um uh, you know, nature shamanic uh, type of deal. I was right in there and it gave me so much freedom in the air. You know, I was playing with my in, in, intuition, and you know, I could, I could, um, I could follow my 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 belly feeling, and it was so much different to me 
that I just I just fall in love. It was just uh, like it was almost like the first flights we did. Uh, we were just blasted, you know. <laughs> it's interesting that you had a quite a different experience than when I talked to Robbie. You know, the reason he, I mean, he still flies, but the reason he really kind of quit the the sport in a sense certainly that the competition and was 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 actually the advent of all the instrumentation you know he recalls that how pure it was to just go by your gut and intuition and feel it all and now you've got instruments that tell you you can make goal and the alarm goes off and you know you you go on so it's you know it's become much more your flight deck is a lot more busy and he 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 didn't like that yeah no not not for me for me um it got even better i think uh, because you know mm. i use uh for sure i use the instrument i use the fai calculator because i want to i want to fly a, a big triangle an fai triangle that's a, a great help you know i had it in in 2000 and 11 already i got in contact with navitor they had no instruments for paragliders so i knew they have instruments for 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 sailplane pilots and and a friend of mine showed me how it works and that um that was great and um i used the i used the instrument as before for vario and most of the time just the sound i don't look at the instrument and i use it for sure the Real own destruction, I've I would say right now for me is airspace uh, restrictions. This is really a, a big. Uh, this is pain in the ass, especially in Switzerland, the place where we fly. You know, <laughs> you really have to be careful with that. But all the rest, you know, for me, it's much more um, working with my um, with my awareness, subconscious. Um, with my belly feeling, I have much more time and room to follow my intuition as it was before, because before you had always to concentrate, I need to go to that turn point. I have to do it. If I don't do it, I miss, I screw up the whole flight because, uh, uh if, if you didn't make the turn point, that was it. Um, and now you know you can play. Uh, you, you can play. You okay there? Let's let's fly another two Ks. Uh, no, it, it's still feeling it's still feeling great. Uh, uh, my power animals tell me go, keep on going. This is a good day, you know. And I think I have much more freedom compared to the time before. For sure, maybe in the competitions it got it got much more technique. Uh, and uh, I think if 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 you don't know your instrument and all the settings, um, you you probably uh, will never win the task. That's that became very important. Tell me about your power animals and spirit helpers. This sounds fascinating and certainly something I'm familiar with in in theory, but I don't know. You know, I I've never explored this spiritual side obviously enough uh this sounds fascinating can you give us some more background on that and how yeah. you you utilize these to to fly so well yeah it, you know they are just for me they are just helpers and they they just make my my flying life easier 
it's like uh, friends uh, flying with you, you know, and uh, um, uh, if you do a, sh a shamanic journey into the underworld, uh, you, you, that's where you, you, you try to, to find a spiritual help. Most of the time, those are animals, power animals. And then you work with them, you travel with them, uh, especially for uh, during shamanic journeys. But they also they can help you um, also here in our life during during uh, this this time up here. And you know, um, I talk to them like friends. And um, you know, a typical flying Dave um, for me looks like. Um, I'm I'm going to um to um to a takeoff place. Uh, I, I I already prepared the flight. Um, I'm I know pretty much more or less what I'm trying to fly on that day. When when I'm on takeoff, I try to to find a place where I have a little bit um, 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 privacy, not too many people around. Um, I need that. That's very important for me. I, I'm always. I, most of the time I go uh, with friends, but we go somewhere else, not where, where another 50 pilots are, are um, uh, you know, uh, sitting around and asking questions and all these things. So then um, before takeoff, um, I always visualize my flight in, in my mind's eye. And uh, I also ask um, uh, for this plan to come true. So I'm more the the um, visual type of guy. Uh, so I, I see exactly the flight I, I, I want to do today. So I ask um, for that. So I ask, I ask my power animals. Uh, I ask them, um, I do a, a small protection exercise. I always do this also before I do a, a reserve parachute test above ground. I, I do a, a kind of a, a protection uh, exercise for me and for my soul. And then when I before take you, off, Before you yeah. move on, your, your, the protection exercise, can you give us some details? What, what does that look like? And then also give us some details on the visualization. Is that, you know, you're, you're literally seeing yourself climb up or is it more you're just visualizing, okay, I'm starting here and I'm going to get there and kind of work down through your flight plan? Okay. Um, the, the exercise I do before each, uh, before such a flight or before a, a test flight is just an exercise I prepared for my own. So I ask, um, I ask for the protection of divine omnipotence and my spiritual self rule. I just want to, I just want to try to stay all the time my own not to to rule by someone else or whatever you know i want to i want to be by my own and uh, i also always um say thank you to the elements that they protect me and i wish uh, that the, the, the flight will come true uh, all these kind of things that is that okay for the first part yeah no that's beautiful <laughs> i love it then the second part is by visualizing my flight it's it's i used to ski race when i was when i was younger you know i, I grew up in a ski ski area ski resort mm -hmm. 
So, you know, what we learned there is that just before you go, before you start your, your ski race, you, you, you gotta have to know exactly where, where, um, where the gates are. You have, you gotta have to know the line you, you wanna, you, you, you wanna, you wanna ski down. Sure. And I do exactly the same for my flight. I know, uh, today is a good day and my plan is, let's say, an FAI triangle for 250 kilometers. I always try to stay realistic, you know. I, for sure, I push always a little bit. I want to fly longer, but <laughs> I try to stay realistic. And, and believe me, Kevin, the last four or five years, I probably messed up two flights, but all other flights... They were like five or ten percent less, or five or ten percent more than what you planned. What I planned, That's I, I really—it's and- really amazing. And then I just sit there and I visualize my flight. You know, the, I know the the places now. I I don't have time to travel far away. I mean, I I, I do four four or five uh, cross country flights a year, so I go to. To places uh, I know Switzerland now very well from the years, so I know the key points, the key um, places, and you know I just try to to see where I'm going to fly over the over the main ridge where I change, where I will switch uh, uh, the valley side and all these things, and I see me I see me flying there, so. For me, you know, what I've learned in in the years before is that, or what I what I learn every day is that um, the my energy follows my consciousness, mm. and by doing this, I really put positive thoughts, positive energy in all this. I, I, I do much more. I do also do. I also practice this then uh, in flight during the flight. You know, when I work with the power animals. And it really helps me to to uh, keep me always in a good mood. You know, I'm never, even if I if if I have um, 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 you know what we call a, if if we get stuck on a construction site, don't know the word in in English. You know, if you if you if you can't move for half an hour or you 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 don't climb up. Uh, yeah, you get uh, stuck. Yeah. You get stuck exactly. Um, then I call my power animals or, or I sing, you know, or I just do something and <laughs> I'm, I'm never pissed, you know, when I, when I'm in such a situation because, uh, um, I stay positive and, um, this is, I don't know if it really helps, but for me, it works, you know, it keeps me always in a good mood. I mean, I think optimism is so key and it sounds like, it sounds like you've created, uh, methods that just keep you very optimistic. Yeah, for during the flight. You know, I think you know um, it. It works for me. Um, uh, everybody might have his own techniques. I mean, if you if you talk to to uh, Thomas Troilot, um he might have um, he might have another plan for you, or you know. So, um, but it's it's really. It's really interesting, and I really 
love this about cross-country flying because I can I can live my intuition and and um, and that's so great. It sounds like it sounds like you've also created a nice system for really being present in what you're doing. I mean, I think the often you know, when when we look back at accidents kind of with 2020 hindsight it, it it often accidents often happen to folks who are dealing with something else in their life they're not really there they're they're like you said they're dealing with a, an ex or a spouse or the fight they had that morning or a bill or finance or just something something is bothering them in their life and you know that that when when you make it one of those kind of obvious human mistakes like forget to to clip in or something because you're just distracted. You're not, you're not really there. I guess, I guess in a sense, uh, you know, when you only have time to have four or five or six cross country flights a year, you're going to put everything you can into it. <laughs> yeah. But, I, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, I also think, you know, that was probably the reason why I was not flying that much, uh, in the early, um, the early uh, millennium years, you know, when I was really in a, in a, in a very bad uh, mental situation and and uh, i'm sure that's where accident accidents um just uh, happens you know Urs, you've won the swiss cup uh, you get to keep it now you've won it so many times as i understand it and since 2013 do i have that right you've won it five times always on an ENB just tell tell the folks who don't know what it is because I'm actually not very clear what it is what what is the Swiss cup and and how does it how Uh, do you win it we have uh here in Switzerland uh the Swiss cross-country competition so um you you guys all know the X contest, I think. Sure. Are, yep. are you using it as well? In, in yeah, and we we is this is this like a league thing? You know, it's it's X contest for the country, so it's your I think it's your five or six best scores over the season. Exactly. So okay. we have we have our our um, our ranking in Switzerland for that, and in we have different categories in Switzerland, and it starts. On the, on the, it, it used to it used to be the fun and safety category that was everything up to uh, and included ENB, and then you have the category sport that includes ENC gliders, and then um, you have the open category where you can fly. Um, uh, open class gliders. There is also the serial class glider uh, categories is is in there. So I flew, I flew from this five years where I was winning that trophy. I flew four years. I flew uh, in the ENB, ENA, and ENB category, but I won in the standard category all the time one year i flew with a enc glider and i also won the 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 the, the, the sport category 
I mean, and, and you're not in Uruguay, buddy. You're in Switzerland. <laughs> uh, arguably the, the best pilots in the world. That's just incredible. And to, to I mean, I, I'm not trying to make you red in the face right now, but to, to only fly four or five or six times a year for, for XC, I mean, I realize you're doing all the testing, so you're flying quite a bit, but to, to go big, you're only doing that a few times a year and to win the Swiss, that's remarkable. And, and a shout out to, well, let's talk about the wing choice and because you're mostly flying the mentor, is that correct? Yes. And that's, uh, I, 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 that's very inspiring that you're you're being you're pulling off these big triangles uh, on on an ENB. Yeah, you know, um, the good days. I mean, that's my advantage uh, being being. Um, um, I I run the business, so I can I can leave. I can leave, and there is a really good day inside. So that's for sure um, an advantage um, if the if the conditions are good. Uh, you can do very well under an ENB glider here in the Alps. There are some disadvantages uh, on big valley crossings. Or if you fly a long time with the wind, uh, the, there's a big disadvantage on on our. I call my glider. It's a pony, you know. It's not. It's a. It's not a racehorse. It's. I call it a pony. Um, <laughs> and um, the good thing also is that I can fly on a good day. We fly eleven hours or even eleven and a half hour hours, and. On, under uh, under uh, um, a um, two-liner, you need to be a very very good pilot to f to being able to fly that long. Yeah, and that true. was you know that was happen. I mean, I mean back in two thousand and thirteen or two thousand and fourteen. I, I I don't remember exactly. I even won the open class with uh, uh, in in the Swiss ranking. I saw I that. Bet, yeah, you won yeah. everything that year on an EMB. And you know, since then, finally, you know, those guys, that was a call. I mean, those guys, they they did they did really great flights. You know, the the hot shots in, in Switzerland. We have so many good pilots and we have so many good pilots uh flying uh, uh working as a test pilot and they are not afraid under those gliders and they can fly they can fly 11 hours too but you know they landed like five or six o'clock in the afternoon mm. where i was still flying another two and a half hours so so now they as i said it was a wake-up call and now they they dominate us for sure you know the the, the cross-country flying got very very popular uh, uh during the last few years we 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 built a cross-country league in switzerland and um that's that that's that was part of martin shell's idea you know to bring um us as cross-country pilots together with the competition pilots and now this is you know this is a big a big cake now and and um 
uh, it's it's really uh, a great source of uh, exchanging experience and inspiring and and now you know the young guys they are they are hot you know they're pushing and now we see really some excellent uh, flights uh, uh, with uh, open class gliders now here in Switzerland we have no chance at all anymore to to uh, to get to get close to them I mean we're still still like you know ten percent behind them still good but um, yeah I, I mean I would love to fly such a such a, um, a wing I mean th- those are beauties you know but it's it's um, probably for uh, for my next reincarnation. No, <laughs> <laughs> I I did want to ask you about that. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because you know, given your SIV experience, given your lifetime of experience and your your comp experience, it must be awfully tempting. You're not that old, Urs. I'm I'm just behind you. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> so you think I I, I, sh- I should still? No, no. I'm, I'm still actually. Still it's it's uh, actually. Uh, I find or something. <laughs> no, no. But I, well, I mean, sure. But <laughs> but I no. I just mean it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's got to be. Um, it's got to be tempting, but at the same time, it's also very inspiring that you're doing this on what you are. I, I, obviously, that's that's you you've you've certainly found the sweet spot, but it's got to be tempting. Uh, whatever I do, my philosophy is it it has to make uh, fun. Um, I really enjoy uh, still flying. Uh, what I what I feel like now, you know, when a few years ago, I was um, I was able to fly two times in a row. I mean, um, one day after the other for eleven and a half hours. I did some really great flights, but now this is. Um, not what I'm looking for anymore. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just dead after after a, an, an eleven uh, hour flight. But so far, flying is still is still uh, uh, I'm still totally dialed in. And um, last year, I started with kitesurfing. You know, there is this uh, this guy called Tony Bender. He he told me, he told me uh, three or four years ago, uh, Earth, you, you gotta have to try foiling. You know, he said it's, um, it's just, um, it's just uh, uh, unbelievable um, feeling. And you know, I'm, I live next to a lake. And last year, when this this bloody lockdown came over, started over here, so I was sitting in front of our house, and all of a sudden. I saw this this uh, foil kite is out there. You know, it's a small lake, um, thermal conditions, not that strong winds, but they were having so much fun. And then I knew this this is the call. You know, and then uh, then I just um, uh, a few weeks later I went shopping. <laughs> I just bought I just bought a board. I, I bought a, a harness, and uh, I called some friends, and then I, I bought uh, I bought the kite. And uh, we went to France. As soon as the lockdown was over, we traveled to France to Yer, um, a beautiful place to stay, to hike also. Uh, and I was down there with my wife and I just started uh, uh, a few lessons, um, 
how to kitesurf on just a normal board. And, and I was just dialed in right away. This was like, wow, this is, this is cool. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, this is, this is something new. So, um, let's see what, what will happen, uh, in the, in the near future. Yeah. Learning, learning is, is, uh, is where it's at, isn't it? And learning anything new is just, is so exciting. Um, yeah. Urs, I want to be mindful of your time. We're getting up close to our, our heart out here. So if you don't mind, I'd love to end on just a few kind of rapid fire questions that I got. We did a survey a few months ago on just, you know, uh, how to make the podcast better and tapping into our listeners. And they, they provided a bunch of fun questions. So I just wanted to give you a few of these. You can answer them shortly or, or in long form, whatever you prefer. But, um, what was the biggest aha moment you've had with, with paragliding? The question is in the last year, but I'll just make that your whole career. Was there ever a, a moment where it was something just really clicked when you look back? Yeah, I think we were, we were already talking in this uh, interview um, about it when I, you know, the place where I grew up, um, I knew from, from my experience as a sailplane pilot uh, that uh, where the thermals were, and the, the glider started to uh, to perform uh, so good that it was uh, it was uh, we were able to fly in the thermals. So I just hiked up the mountain. I launched right into the thermal, and that was yes, mm -hmm. this is it, this is it. And uh, I got I got connected forever. Oh, so you kind of you you kind of knew it was going to happen from your experience in sailplanes. Yeah, okay, I'm going to fly over there, and this is going to work, and it did. Yeah, yeah, That's pretty exactly. Exciting. What's the funniest thing you've seen when flying, ever? Oh, um, <laughs> the funniest thing that was flying on a sailplane, and you know when we began to fly we were not allowed to leave um, the airfield uh, for about a, uh, a radius of, of 50 kilometers and you know we got bored after a while there was another a young guy flying together with me so we were chasing we were chasing um hikers on the on the in in the mountains we were just flying over the ridges pretty fast and i spotted a couple they were naked and they were having fun <laughs> did you do some flybys <laughs> do some yes, tom cruise for sure. <laughs> i was i was young i was young man <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah, this is back before uh, you know the porn is just proliferated all over the internet. You, it's like it's like having a magazine played out in front of you, a little Playboy on the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Last one. If you could only make one more flight, where would you go? Where would it be? Um, I would just follow my intuition. It could be. Yeah, just here um, around the house, next mountain. I think if it's if it's the last flight uh, uh, for me, 
it can happen wherever you know it's 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 doesn't matter every fl- every flight is a beauty i love it fantastic place to end earth what a pleasure that was uh that was a real joy thank you so much for sharing your time and giving us a little window into your remarkable life thanks kevin and um all the best to you for the x alps race this year and um watch out maybe uh, i come and and visit you somewhere in switzerland oh that would be great i'd, I'd uh, love I'll it lend, you... i'll lend you i'll lend you one of my power animal that would be fantastic i need all the help i can get getting through kriegel's backyard yeah so it's, it's yes it, <laughs> that would be that would be welcomed thanks Urs. yeah you're welcome bye-bye Kevin. thanks a lot bye-bye find the cloud-based mayhem valuable you can support it in a lot of different ways you can give us a rating on itunes or stitcher however you get your podcast that goes a long ways and helps spread the word you can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media you can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends i know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way and of course you can support us financially this show does take a lot of time a lot of editing a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show Thank you.